HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by Magnus Design. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome chocolate expert, food writer, Megan Giller. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Megan about chocolate, what the bean-to-bar movement is all about, and we'll hear Megan's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As usual, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're delving back into a favorite subject of mine, And in keeping with Julia's wisdom, it's all about following a passion. And I'm passionate about chocolate. I don't go a day without eating it. And while I have my preferences, I vote dark over milk. I'm not that fussy, nor that wise on the topic. Guess who else was a chocoholic? That's right. Sources tell me it was Julia's preferred sweet treat. Her recipes for Ren de Saba chocolate cake and for classic French chocolate mousse are both prized and were two of her favorite desserts. 
Now, back in episode 34, we indulged this passion for chocolate in conversation with real-life Willy Wonka, chocolatier Jacques Torres. That marked an introduction to the Bean de Bar chocolate movement. But we were still hungry to dive deeper into the modern chocolate world, as it felt like we'd only just scratched the surface. Our guest today, accomplished food writer Megan Giller, has really devoted herself to the world of chocolate making and chocolate makers. Her recent book, Bean de Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution, covers artisan chocolate making, how that side of chocolate making is really growing, and serves as a primer on what every chocolate lover needs to know. Her blog, Chocolate Noise, was a 2016 Savoir Food Blog Award finalist. This woman knows her stuff when it comes to chocolate. Welcome to the podcast, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, first question is, how does one become a chocolate expert? <laughs> well, so I have been a food writer for many, many years and writing for Slate and Food and Wine, Fortune, all sorts of places. And uh, I just have always been obsessed with dessert and have a huge sweet tooth. And so I started writing a lot about the plated desserts uh, that I in the, at the restaurants I was reviewing. And then kind of serendipitously at the same time, um, went and visited a chocolate shop that really focused on uh, bean-to-bar chocolate. And I had no idea what that meant. I just thought, okay, that sounds right up my alley. So I went there, uh, and this was in Portland. It's called Cacao. And I highly recommend going there. It's a really special place. And I got some bars that really just blew my mind. I had never had chocolate that tasted that good. Um, and they told me that it was bean-to-bar made from scratch in, in the U.S. And I thought that was really cool and wanted to learn more about it. And as I researched the companies and tried to just educate myself about chocolate, I realized there wasn't that much information out there about um, this new movement, bean-to-bar. But then also kind of um, definitive answers to things like, is white chocolate chocolate <laughs> and some some stuff like that that I, I wanted to know. And so um, kind of just as I began educating myself, I began writing about it for these different outlets and then also on my site, Chocolate Noise. And so then once that little snowball so started rolling, it just became bigger and bigger. And I started learning more and more and really getting to know these makers really well and learning the ins and outs of this movement, but also kind of the history of chocolate and, um, you know, where it's going too. And I assume some of that came from a similar just personal passion of enjoying chocolate. Absolutely. Yes. I, I think uh, I would have been in trouble if I did not like chocolate because especially at the very beginning, you know, every night my husband and I would take out three to five bars and do a little mini chocolate tasting, just trying to educate ourselves like, okay, well, what what is a single origin bar from Madagascar taste like versus a single origin bar with beans from Venezuela? And, you know, what is this maker style? What is that maker style? And trying to just uh, educate our palates, too. So it was a lot of fun, a lot of chocolate to eat. I was going to say that sounded like <laughs> suffering for your art. Oh, yes, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but thank God you survived it. Yes. So that led you to, I guess, after a series of different research projects and articles to write a whole book on Bean to Bar. And you also kind of not, you didn't just call it the Bean to Bar book. You called, you referenced Americans Craft Chocolate Revolution. So tell us about how those 
two things interconnect? Yeah. So first of all, I kind of use the the phrases bean to bar and craft chocolate interchangeably. Um, I think both of them have kind of nebulous definitions right now. And I define them in the book. But they so for now, I think people use them pretty interchangeably. But so just real quick, bean to bar means that um, people are starting to make chocolate from scratch, from whole beans and roasting and grinding and turning it into chocolate on their own, which is very different than how people have kind of interacted with chocolate as chocolatiers or pastry chefs in the past. So um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, this movement just kind of exploded in uh, the U.S. uh, where people were like, well, why do we need to buy chocolate from a big company rather than making it on our own? And why does it need to have more ingredients than just cocoa beans and sugar? And so uh, they started doing this on their own, all these tiny little companies. And at first there were maybe like five companies in the country, and now there are over 200. And it's so I focused in my book on just the American movement. But it's really kind of inspired this uh, change in how we think about chocolate and what it means to be a chocolate related company. Um, And so bean to bar makers are popping up all over the world. It's really cool to see it spread that quickly, like in Japan and New Zealand and the UK and even in France, which has, you know, such a long tradition of chocolate making. Well, that makes me think, can we back up though? Because I think you, you are so expert on this and I was a child in the Hershey chocolate factory, but I don't really remember it. I think we also need a primer of You've sort of skipped over this scent that even even smaller than the major huge commercial chocolate makers, right? Mo- historically, most chocolate makers had had it they they didn't make it from scratch. So maybe take us just through the the sort of landscape of what existed up until this revolution. Sure. So it's kind of the difference between what well, we call them chocolate makers versus chocolatiers. So if you even now walked into you know your average chocolate shop. Um, They might have truffles and bonbons and chocolate bark and all sorts of things like that. And they, uh, you know, buy pre-made chocolate. It's usually made by a big company and then melt that down and, you know, turn it into these different artful confections. And that is amazing. I love that stuff. (laughs) And uh, it's, you know, it's just a different sort of skill and art. Um, And so what, so those are chocolatiers, people who work with pre-made chocolate. What I'm talking about are chocolate makers. So primarily what we are used to seeing and have seen for like the past 150 or 200 years is chocolatiers. Now there's this new movement of small chocolate makers who spend time working with farmers in Central and South America, for example, sourcing high quality beans and then shipping those beans back to their factories and roasting and grinding them and really perfecting the process so it's a lot of it's almost like being like an engineer a physicist or a chemist on the chocolate maker side versus being a chef and an artist on the chocolatier side so does that make sense like they're two incredible skills no i think that that was good and but i am curious just because we reach a very broad audience yeah like do companies like m&m mars that make huge mass chocolate confections are they do they also buy pre-made chocolate or because they're so big, do they make their own chocolate but of a sort of different um, constitution? Yeah, that's right. So they're so big. So, you know, Mars, Hershey, Cadbury, 
those sorts of companies are so big that they are making, they're buying beans and making their own chocolate from scratch too. But of course they have a whole different set of parameters of what that chocolate should be than, and taste like than some of these small makers. So it's just kind of quality versus quantity, I guess, and quality versus standardization. So, um, and then the, the companies that I was talking about that, you know, that chocolatiers would buy from could be a great company like Valrona or Calibo. There's lots of other companies too. So it's not like they're buying from, you know, obviously from Mars or something like that. Well, I, I think that's important to understand too, because, and the reason I asked that in part was that also means like, yeah, there's the middle range of chocolatiers who might be buying all different qualities of pre-made mm-hmm. chocolate. But then when you've got these smaller craft players looking at, um, you know, sourcing beans, they're actually competing in a marketplace with giant multinationals who are also sourcing beans. Absolutely. Um, They are competing with them, you know, but I think it ends up being, they're competing with them on on a like large scale, but I think they've really carved out a niche market for themselves. And, um, you know, a lot of people who want to eat this higher quality chocolate that's more thoughtful and um, kind of more fair along the supply chain, because a lot of what they think about is how farmers are, are paid for their work um, and kind of making an um, international community and really partnering with farmers. So, um, I, you know, yes, they are competing, but I think it's like you have a $1 chocolate bar and then a $10 chocolate bar. And the type of consumer who's going to buy one versus the other is almost a different type of consumer right now. And maybe we should just talk about that because my my sense is of the craft chocolate revolution. It's kind of a balancing scale, but with kind of maybe the weight is slightly different, but a lot of the interest is in both the quality and taste, but also the ethical nature of the production. Maybe you could just take us through what were the ethical issues that were kind of troubling certain chocolate tiers? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, you totally nailed it in terms of the differences. And um, But so just talking about the ethical issues, um, and this is something that big chocolate, if you want to call it that, is working on too. And they have, you know, committees and that kind of stuff. Um, it's hard to know exactly how much progress they're making. But there's just, um, I think that it just boils down to if you buy a a bar, a chocolate bar for a dollar, there's a reason that it's a dollar and it's that a lot of people along the supply chain are not being compensated fairly. So 70% of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa and um, many, many of those farmers are living in in extreme poverty. Um, They're subsistence farmers, it's a cash crop, there's not really a tradition of chocolate making or chocolate eating in that part of the world it was the cocoa was brought to west africa um so they a lot of people have never even tasted chocolate so um you know it's something they send out and they are living kind of hand to mouth or even worse than that just really completely um starving uh and so that you know Bean to bar chocolate or the craft chocolate movement saw that and really did not like what was happening, and not just in Africa, but across the globe um, with cacao farmers. And so they really tried. So I'll, I'll use Askinosi chocolate as an example. So I think they've done a really excellent job of working with farmers. So they um, have picked a couple different spots around the world to really focus on and find farmer partners. And so they um, 
share profits with the farmer co-ops in Tanzania and the Philippines and actually I believe everywhere. So they also work in Ecuador Um, and they take a lot of time going to visit the farmers and saying like, hey, what do you guys need from us? Like, oh, okay, you need us to help build a well that would really help move everything along in terms of, you know, your quality of life, but also making or growing beans. Um, And they also do the they they come and like it's kind of amazing do these five-year business plans with farmers so that farmers can really figure out how to be um, self-sustainable so if Askinosi chocolate went under they would still know how to sell their beans for a higher price and like how to process them correctly so they can get that higher price and those sorts of things so um that's one example of a company that kind of goes above and beyond and really thinks a lot about social justice but I would say the movement overall is very concerned with that. And a lot of the bean to bar makers now are actually putting out transparency reports, which is something they've kind of copied from the coffee industry, but I think is awesome. So you can see, you know, which farmer co-ops they worked with around the world, how much they paid for the beans, um, what kind of other projects they worked on, what the farmer co-ops might have done with some of that extra money. Um, and then also what's going on at their factories in the U S and so th- that's kind of the, the the serious and maybe dark side of chocolate that I think maybe people are more familiar with with coffee. Yes. Um, but obviously, there's um, just to just to take us out of maybe thinking about subsistence farming and poverty, which is important to be cognizant of. The other side of the craft is is right getting and making coffee that uh, chocolate that's more interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you're buying uh, bean-to-bar chocolate or or craft chocolate, you're really going to be tasting higher quality beans. So there's a lot of focus on getting higher quality beans and then also making sure they've been um, kind of treated correctly, fermentation and drying and roasting and how they're ground and refined too. And that can make a huge difference in the taste of the chocolate. So, I mean, I always think these other issues we were talking about are really important, but one reason I always bring up Askinosi and really love them is their chocolate tastes amazing too and you want to eat it and it makes you happy and you know that they're really uh, participating in the world in, in a respectful way. But um, but anyway, so, you know, fermentation, not to get too nerdy about this, but like, you know, if you tried a raw cocoa bean, it would not taste like chocolate. It would just taste super bitter. And so fermentation is like one of the most important steps in making the chocolate taste chocolatey. So um, all these acids are burning off as the beans are fermented and it's the first time you kind of get some of those chocolatey notes. So making sure that whole process is happening correctly and then kind of, you know, using top-notch beans and top-notch sugar and other things that they're introducing in there. And also to some degree working in, in smaller batches. All of that is really helping just up the quality so much that it, it really surprises me every time how delicious this stuff tastes. And can we talk, I've just, I think a lot of people are interested in fermentation and it's become more of a topic and people maybe are more aware of it and the diversity of it and how it's an important natural thing that happens, but it's also an important process in loads of food making. So with chocolate, how are cacao beans fermented? Yeah. So I don't know if uh, you're familiar with what a cacao pod looks like, but it's kind of like this 
it's about a football shaped size and they are beautiful colors like red and purple and orange and just really bright so when you open one of those up it's not I, I mean I have this fantasy that you open it up and there's like liquid chocolate that you can just like eat straight out of it like in Willy Wonka but <laughs> it's actually this mass of white fruit and then the beans are kind of encased in the white fruit so you would chop open the pod and pull out everything together. Um, and then that white fruit with the beans in it is actually fermented in boxes or um, under banana leaves for, you know, any, anywhere from five to 10 days. It kind of depends on the type of bean. And um, that part of the process, like I was saying, is really important to flavor. And when you don't do it correctly, you can get crazy flavors like smoked ham <laughs> and just really nut stuff. So um, so that part is really important. I, I don't think it really, unfortunately, makes chocolate a fermented food in the way that we talk about kombucha or sauerkraut or anything like that, because the beans are then dried and then also roasted. So you're kind of uh, you're not necessarily getting the same nutritional benefit, but it is interesting how it changes things and um, all the acids that are burning off and different flavors that are developing during that time. So is the fermentation is natural and nothing's really added to it? It's just removed from its protective shell and then air dried? Is that yeah. how it ferments? Well, so that's a great question because traditionally you would not add anything to it. You would maybe remove some of the fruit because a lot of times there's more fruit than you want. Um, by the way, that fruit is delicious and it tastes like lychee or something very tropical. But um, yeah, you don't need anything else. You do need it covered just so, I mean, really it starts to become alcohol, the fruit itself. Um, but people are adding really interesting things now. So um, there is a guy in Ecuador who was adding all sorts of different, you know, banana peels and different things that would change the fermentation process. And he really looked at it like a science um, and like winemaking or something. And so he was just making these exquisite beans. And Valrona too recently has started coming out with products where they, um, the beans have been fermented once normally and then fermented again with, say, um, a type of juice, like passion fruit juice or something like that. So it starts to get these other flavors and, and taste like passion fruit. Um, and it's really interesting. So you don't have to add anything, but you can. And I think people are getting more into that science. I actually know uh, one man who actually, his whole job is just specializing in helping people figure out how to ferment beans correctly. And he goes all over the world and works with different farmer co-ops. Wow. Um, so would you say, though, in general, the fermentation, even when it's done mass of, of, of cacao beans, is relatively natural it's not a, you, you do the big mass market people do they add chemicals or something to it or or is it generally just done quite naturally with mm, air? that's a good question so i i wish i knew a little bit more about how the big guys operate um i would hope that it's natural but they might be adding things to make the fermentation happen more quickly um, I know with ruby chocolate, they're kind of changing the fermentation process in ways that I, I don't quite understand. But, uh, you know, there's something going on at the fermentation level there to, to make the chocolate pink, or the, the cocoa beans pink. So, um, yeah, I don't know. They, I think there is a lot of manipulation you can do. And unfortunately, I haven't delved into that quite as much as I probably should to really know all the different ways you can ma manipulate it. Got it. 
Well, that's helpful. I just I, that question was so on my mind that I thought it might interest yeah. other listeners. So I felt while I had you there, I'd have to ask. And again, it just seems like there there's um, so much that we could talk about with chocolate, and we're going to keep doing that right after we go to a break. And we'll talk to Megan a little bit more about her favorite chocolate producers and how she hosts chocolate tastings. So stay with us. Are you a chocolate lover? Who are your f- favorite chocolate makers? For the record, I'm a huge fan of Christopher Elbow Chocolates, not an ad. Let us know yours. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. This episode is presented by Magnus Design. Swedish designer Magnus Lundström has taken his extensive experience designing best-selling products for companies including Electrolux and IKEA, and created his own line of kitchenware, combining his engineering skills and artistry to produce timeless products that reflect environmental awareness and respect for natural materials. Crafted for everyday use, his mortar and pestles, cutting boards, and spice mills have been repeatedly selected as best in the represented categories for years. You can see Magnus's products online at magnuslundstrom.com. That's Magnus, L-U-N-D-S-T-R-O-M dot com. Or visit his partner's store, Area Home, located below Union Square on 11th Street. Welcome back. We are talking to chocolate expert Megan Giller all about artisanal chocolate and the bean-to-bar movement. So we were just talking a lot in the last half about how chocolate's made and the different processes and what is natural and not natural and what is the social issues. But I really wanted to ask you, you mentioned a few, but um, to tell us about the the craft chocolate producers you think we really need to know about. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There are so many. So I, I mentioned Askinosi earlier as um, someone involved in social justice and also making really delicious chocolate. Um, Dandelion is another one of my favorites. They're in San Francisco and they have a cafe and factory there. And they're actually about to move into another pretty big factory and expand production. So it's very hard to find right now, but, um, but I think it will be easier then. And they actually focus on something that's pretty quintessential American style bean to bar chocolate where it's just cocoa beans and sugar. So no vanilla, no added cocoa butter, no sea salt, no pop rocks, like nothing crazy, uh, just those two ingredients. And so they really focus on the flavor of the cocoa beans or the terroir that's in them because uh, beans have terroir just like wine grapes. So dandelion is a must, especially if you're just getting into this movement and really want to taste some things. Uh, one of my personal favorites is fruition chocolate. They're in upstate New York and um, they just make some amazing products. So they make some bars that are that American style that I was just talking about with just cocoa beans and sugar. But then they also make, you know, brown butter milk chocolate and some of my favorite dark milk chocolates and all sorts of confections as well. So um, they're definitely one to, to look out for. Um, gosh, there's so many. And, you know, this is international, but I'm really uh, obsessed with this brand called Chocolate Naive right now. And they're from Lithuania. And um, and I say they, but it's really, you know, most of these are just a couple people. And this is pretty much one guy. But um, his packaging is really beautiful, of course. But then the chocolate itself 
is just so luscious and smooth and creamy. And he has some really interesting inclusions that are kind of significant to Lithuania, but that I think are really interesting too. Like he has a porcini mushroom bar that is one of my favorites I've ever tasted and a kefir bar. So talking about fermentation, he calls that like, you know, a live bar (laughs) Um, and that it continues to grow and develop uh, as, as it's in, you know, making its way to your house and then to your mouth. Um, so I can keep going forever with these, but, but those are some of my top ones. And wow. So how, how does one come across someone? I mean, that's just, we talked about the origins of where chocolate is produced and just to remind people, it's essentially an equatorial product where it only grows, where it's hot and wet and sunny. Um, how how did you discover a Lithuanian chocolate maker? Is he importing it to the United States? Yeah, so you can get it in the U.S. Um, and I let's see, how did I find him? So you know this this community is pretty small, um, and there are a couple of chocolate festivals that are um, really special to go to if you are interested in bean to bar chocolate. So I think I probably first encountered his. Um, at the Northwest Chocolate Festival in Seattle, which I highly recommend. It's a really fun time. And bean-to-bar makers come from all over the world (laughs) Um, and a bunch of amazing chocolatiers from mainly all over the country. Um, And so I I remember trying his there and just being blown away and then, of course, getting it. Um, There are also delivery services, like uh, if you've heard of Cocoa Runners or Bar and Cocoa, those are two of them. And so they actually will send you some some bars from all over the world and they have a subscription box where you can order things online. So, um, and then, you know, everyone kind of knows everyone in this world. So someone will say, oh, have you tried chocolate naive stuff? And you're like, no, I haven't. And immediately run out and get it. So, (laughs) um, so it's, it's kind of in the ether, like, you know, you hear about it through the grapevine. So, well, that's a great. Now, now I've realized I've been missing this opportunity to tell when people say, "Oh, what do you want as a present for Christmas?" Or people, I mean, my family. I should be saying a chocolate subscription. <laughs> yeah, else? totally. And you know, it's interesting. More um, so, the the ones I just named, Cocoa Runners and Bar and Cocoa, are independent companies. But a lot of the bean to bar makers are actually starting chocolate subscriptions just on their own. So I know Ritual Chocolate, which is one of my favorites, is about to launch one. And then Map Chocolate, which is another one of my favorites, they have two subscriptions. So you can get um, a subscription to all of their crazy bars. So they have single origin bars and just these amazing inclusion bars. Or now uh, they actually have uh, a baking subscription box, too. So, you know, it's all sorts of baking chocolate and high-end cocoa powder and all sorts of fun things. And she kind of, kind of sends out recipes too, um, although you're free to, to make what you whatever you like. So that one, I'm having a hard time not ordering <laughs> multiple versions of that for myself. <laughs> well, and maybe that's a good point to just remind people what the most of what you're, I think, been talking about is sort of eating chocolate that is blended and, and made to be consumed sort of on its own versus baking chocolate, right, which is usually distinct. Maybe you can just talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, all, all of the bars that I've been talking about and just the idea behind it so far have been 
that the finished product is in bar form and you would, you know, kind of either, depending on who you are, gobble that down or eat it very slowly and savor it, um, but not necessarily use it in a lot of other recipes. Um, and some of that is just due to like price and form factor. Um, but more and more of these types of companies are creating baking chocolate and cocoa powder. So, I mean, traditionally baking chocolate and cocoa powder have not been very high quality. And it, it, to just, you know, since I have so much chocolate laying around the house, I, I do end up using these bean to bar bars as baking chocolate and it completely transforms whatever you're making. Just, it's a totally different thing. Um, and I'm always asked at parties if I bring cookies, like, what did you do to these chocolate chip cookies? And I'm like, you know, it's just really high quality ingredients. But so, um, you know, I would not recommend though buying 10 of these bars and chopping them up and then making cookies with them. That would be quite costly and not really how it's meant to be enjoyed. So that's why I'm saying people are starting to do these baking subscriptions. And, you know, for baking, you want more than just the bars too. You would want some unsweetened chocolate. So when so 100% chocolate, but then also cocoa powder. So many recipes call for that. And um, that's one way that MAP in particular is special because not that many bean-to-bar makers actually make their own cocoa powder and cocoa butter. And so if you can get high-quality cocoa um, powder that's made from like really high-quality beans, it just tastes so much better. Um, and so that's pretty much exclusively what I cook with at home, although I... I I use like Valrona and Guitard are, are good choices too. If you can't get, um, I mean, both of those are bean to bar companies. They're just bigger bean to bar companies. So, but yeah, it, and, it changes and everything. Remind, remind us, the co- how is cocoa powder different? It's not just ground up. Ah, uh, yeah. Just pulverized okay. chocolate bars, right? Right. So that would be more similar to like a, a drinking chocolate mix that you might get. So cocoa powder. So essentially, a cocoa bean is half fat cocoa butter and half what would become cocoa powder. <laughs> um, it's you know, the brown stuff. So you, after you've roasted and ground those beans, they become kind of like a paste and you would put them in a cocoa butter press and that exerts like several tons of pressure on them. And then it actually separates into cocoa powder and cocoa butter. And so from there, it's almost like a, it's like a cake of a uh, cocoa powder that's very thick and you have to kind of grind it up or chop it up a little bit more in to become the powder that we know. And most of the time when you buy cocoa powder in the store, it's been through one more process called uh, alkalization or Dutch processing. And so that makes it kind of a more, it takes away some of the bitterness, it makes it darker and it makes it a more kind of even flavor. Um, so some of the terroir from the cocoa beans, that's kind of erased. So it'll taste the same every time. Um, I mean, that taste is just think of um, hot hot cocoa. That's essentially a Dutch processed cocoa taste. Um, and I'm not saying one is better than the other necessarily. Like you would use them in baking differently. Um, but so it, it's kind of interesting to have access now to natural cocoa powder that has not been treated with alkali um, and then high quality Dutch processed cocoa as well. Um I was going to tell you one more thing about the Dutch processing. Oh, yes. So natural cocoa powder a lot of times is sold as cacao powder, which is a particular pet peeve of mine that I'll try not to get into. But just know that if you see cacao raw cacao powder, it is probably not really raw. It is actually just natural cocoa powder that has not been treated with alkali. Hmm. And and yeah, just to, to underscore. So when you have cocoa powder, they've taken the cocoa butter, the fat out of it, and it's just the sort of raw flavor and 
and bean itself. That's right. And it and does have a little bit of fat left over in it, but it's mostly defatted. And then when you make, when someone makes chocolate or do they actually are essentially, it, depending on what form they're buying it in or making themselves there, it's recombined. It's the powder and the fat back together with. Yes. So that, that is a great question because yes, industrial chocolate, that's exactly how it's made. So, you know, if you were to buy a lint bar, that's exactly what they've done. They've separated the cocoa butter and the cocoa powder Dutch processed the cocoa powder and then recombined those two ingredients with other ingredients too. When you make bean to bar chocolate, you do not press them into two separate ingredients and then recombine them. So you grind and refine the cocoa beans until they're very smooth or, you know, maybe grainy if you're making Mexican style. Um, and then you immediately temper that chocolate and form it into bars. So they're, uh, so I guess that's part of the bean to bar process that is very different than the type of chocolate that we encounter in every other circumstance. Wow, I could keep going, but um, <laughs> I, I wanted so to ask here. you yeah. before we run out of time a yeah. little bit more. And, and this kind of all relates because I'm sure you talk about it, but you host chocolate tastings. And could you kind of tell us, while well, one can imagine that they're similar to wine tasting or cheese tasting, just tell us what's involved in, in, in chocolate tasting in general and, and then the ones you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love hosting chocolate tastings because I love sharing all of this chocolate that, that I have and have had you know, have encountered with people. Um, and also kind of talking about like, you know, chocolate is not just kind of a staple boring ingredient. There's a lot that, go, that goes into it as we've been talking about. So, but yeah, you're exactly right. It's like a, a wine tasting or a cheese tasting. It's that kind of format where we usually have about five chocolates and we kind of learn how to taste. So I judge the International Chocolate Awards and uh, we use those kind of nerdy Another protocols. Another rough job you have. Yes, I know. It's it's a hard life. Um, <laughs> but so we kind of use those protocols in terms of like slowing down and, you know, looking at the chocolate, smelling the chocolate, um, really letting it melt in your mouth and thinking about the different flavors. Um, and, and I can get into more detail about that too. And then, you know, once people know that they can either decide if they want to do that or just eat it normally through the rest of the tasting. Um, but there's a big difference between tasting and eating, right? So, um, and then we kind of make our way, uh, through all five chocolates and I talk about kind of the bean to bar movement and what that means. And they get to try different examples of say, what is a bean to bar chocolate made with just cocoa beans and sugar taste like versus one that, um, you know, has added cocoa butter and vanilla and is a more traditional European style chocolate, but still this bean to bar style. Um, and, you know, different amazing milk chocolates that are really at the top of their game and um, kind of telling the stories behind the different chocolate makers, too, since I um, know pretty, know a lot of them pretty well now and kind of what what they're well known for, what they do the best and any funny facts I might know about them. Um, and then inevitably, I end up getting a lot of questions like we've been talking about, like, well, what is cocoa powder and like, how do you get that? And, you know, it, it's cocoa butter from a coconut or from a cocoa bean, you know. So we there's it's very interactive and um, and a lot of fun. So, and I also, of course, love to add in pairings. So we'll do chocolate and cheese is one of my favorite pairings. And it's something that I have in my book that I worked with Murray's cheese on. And it's such a good combo. So chocolate and cheese are always a favorite. Chocolate and beer work very well together. And one of my all-time favorites is also chocolate and tea because um, both of them are very aromatic. And so together they kind of become this amazing 
third thing. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun to, to combine all these different foods and see what happens. And uh, you mentioned wine and fortified wine and chocolate go together very well. So I end up doing a lot of uh, port and sherry and that kind of stuff at my tastings, too. Wow. Sounds very enticing. So tell tell me a little bit more, because I'm sure this comes up in a tasting, where you either talk about terroir or single origin, which are kind of related ideas. But could you share with us more about how those come into play with chocolate and how you talk about them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, cocoa beans have terroir, which just means, you know, they taste like the place where they're grown or the place where they're grown. It influences how they taste. And, you know, everything has terroir. We talk about it a lot with wine, but, you know, even maple syrup has terroir. But chocolate, um, partially because of like the Dutch processing that uh, we were talking about earlier, we've kind of come to associate chocolate with this very simplistic flat taste. And it's like, you know, all chocolate is chocolate is chocolate. And so tasting these single origin bars, where uh, which is very important in the bean to bar movement, it's just because people get very captivated by it. It really kind of changes your mind about what chocolate can taste like. So, um, I mean, I remember one of the very first bars I tried that really got me interested in bean to bar was um, a bar with beans from Madagascar. And Madagascar is known for very bright, fruity beans and Sometimes they can even be lemony or limey, which sounds crazy. Um, <laughs> and a lot of times they're more often than that, they're more like raspberry, just very strong raspberry notes to the point where, I mean, Dandelion makes an amazing Madagascar bar. And they say that people just oftentimes will not believe they haven't put raspberries in there because <laughs> it really tastes like there's something else. And so usually at my tastings, we start with something like that just to kind of surprise people like, hey, wow, chocolate tastes really different. And it's not that you have to have this insanely amazing palate to taste it. It's that, I mean, everyone can taste how fruity and bright that is. Um, and once you kind of have that experience, it's really interesting to think about what the different flavors um, around the world are. And I actually have a map in my book because I, I just really wanted this cheat sheet when I was first starting to learn about chocolate. Like, well, what does what do the beans from Vietnam taste like? And obviously this is a very simplistic sort of thing, right? Um, because beans from Vietnam may taste like very different things depending on what area they're grown in and how they're grown. Um, and, you know, just like wine terroir in chocolate boils down to you know, the soil and the microbes in the soil and the air and whether it was a cloudy season and all of those sorts of things can change it quite a bit. But you can kind of characterize it by country. So I was saying Madagascar is known for very fruity, bright beans, whereas like the Dominican Republic, for example, is known for fruity beans too, but kind of in a dried red fruit area. Um, so very, very different um, Vietnam that I was talking about earlier kind of has this spicy note to it. So warming spices, um, but also, you know, a little, a little bit of heat sometimes. Uh, and then I think one of the most famous examples is in Papua New Guinea, uh, because they're very, very smoky. And that is actually, well, there's an argument going on in the chocolate world right now about whether or not that's terroir or not, because, um, the, it rains a lot in Papua New Guinea. And so they actually, most of the time beans are dried in other parts of the world out, you know, outside either on the road or in a drying bed that's flat, um, just in like a field. Um, and 
in Papua New Guinea, they're actually brought inside out of the rain and then uh, dried over a fire. So you can imagine that the smoke from the fire actually gets into <laughs> the bean itself. And so that's what's creating the smokiness. But so now people are talking about that as terroir too. So it's a lot of fun to try all of these next to each other, especially and you know, kind of dissect all the different flavors. Um, and that's something that... Uh, when I have gone to like the fine chocolate industry association meetings, they generally have a tasting at the beginning um, led by one of the best tasters I've ever been around in my life. And it's really, really interesting to hear him talk about the terroir of all of these single origin chocolates that, that he's trying and that we're trying to obviously at the same time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. We're gone on, I feel like this amazing global journey which is again why I think chocolate as much as I enjoy it it's also just a super fascinating topic that there's so much to cover so we are fast running out of time though and I wanted to just ask you one last question kind of about what else you're working on as a food writer are you doing all chocolate this year or do you have some other things that you're really excited about that you're exploring or coming out to yeah I it is most mostly chocolate all the time but (laughs) but I have two other kind of related things. So one um, actually is related to chocolate, but it's about women and chocolate. On uh, my site, Chocolate Noise, I'm doing a whole series of profiles of women in chocolate. So chocolate makers, but also scholars and historians and farmers and that kind of stuff. And then kind of to go along with that, I have started a, a video series called What Women Ate. And um, that's not about chocolate at all, although there is one episode about it. But it's about what different historical women ate um, over the course of history and how that kind of informs who they were and what that says about the society and how the society's ideas around women too. So it, it's on YouTube right now and you can also find it at whatwomenateshow.com. And it's, it's very, it's supposed to be funny and light, but also educational at the same time. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for filling us in on all your chocolate expertise and these things that are coming up. And after the break, Megan's going to fill us in on her Julia moment. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Michael Harlan Turkel, and I'm the host of The Food Scene here on HRN. This show explores the intersection of food, art, and design by talking to people who are inspired by these ideas. The show features food photographers, food stylists, interior designers, and so much more. All the players that make the world so visually delicious. You can find The Food Scene wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen... Who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Megan, your turn. What's your Julia moment? (laughs) Well, you know, you actually kind of mentioned it earlier with the chocolate mousse recipe. The famous chocolate mousse recipe was one of the first chocolate recipes I made, and it it made a huge impression on me. And also that she adds um, a little bit of coffee to it uh, to kind of perk up the chocolate flavors was really interesting at the time and still tastes really great. So also the, the addition of rum. All those those three things together just make a killer chocolate mousse and really, I think, inspired me early on to start thinking about chocolate, but then 
also, you know, making a recipe from the master is uh, <laughs> something that I wanted to have in my repertoire. Well, I think all of this discussion, if you listening at home or in your car or wherever you listen to podcasts are not hungry for chocolate or something sweet after that whole conversation or racing to the store to get the ingredients to make Julia's chocolate mousse, that there's no hope for you then, I think. Um, I know that I definitely need a chocolate bar now. And I think, (laughs) thank Megan very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. A pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening in. And uh, now that you're a fan of the podcast, you make sure to follow the foundation on social media if you don't already. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. And we're at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. If you want to keep up to date with everything in Megan's chocolate infested world, follow her on Instagram and Facebook. Her handle is at Chocolate Noise. And her Twitter handle is at Megan Giller, and she spells Megan M-E-G-A-N, and Giller is G-I-L-L-E-R. And her website, which also has a blog on it, is chocolatenoise.com. And the book, it's Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution, published by Story Publishing back in 2017. You can find it online or ask for it at your favorite bricks-and-mortar bookseller. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH, Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please do give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and our downloads are available soon after on most of the major uh, iPod uh, broadcasters and look for it wherever you listen to podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening. <laughs>